As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. So we got him out of bed and he was just a crying, bumbly mess, you know. So it was good, this big, strong coward was uh, crying like a baby when he was arrested. 
Heath O'Loughlin is an Australian author whose new book, Sons of God, is about a topic very close to his heart, the Victorian Special Operations Group. It's special to Heath because his father, Doug, was a founding member. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the headlines to discover how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. In this episode, we'll hear about sieges, stabbings, hostage situations and terror attacks from the perspective of a man whose job it was to deal with them all. And from his son, whose childhood was spent wondering if his dad would make it home. We kick off this conversation by asking Doug O'Loughlin about SOG basic training. He went through the training course, which was the hardest course ever. They all say that. What so, was hard about it, by the way? What's the training? Oh, just the physical training and, yeah, it, it, it was very demanding on you mentally and physically. In my imagination, I'm, I'm thinking of those movies and TV shows where, what, did they put a hood over your head and pretend to kidnap you in the middle yeah. of the night or something and dump you in the middle of the desert? Like, no, they did that to Heath when he was 15. <laughs> so, yeah. No, it's uh, just the aspect of it because you're looking for individual men with that won't give up. Mm-hmm. But you're also looking for team players. There must be a team player. You can't go into a situation, a hostage siege situation, where you want to be the hero or you want to do everything. You must rely on your teammates that are following you in or you're following them in. So, yeah, it's a, the, the team dynamics is so important to make sure that you come out on top. Do the glory seekers get weeded out pretty quickly? Like, Because you always think... People would be attracted to that. It's yeah, elite. yeah, well, it's, yeah, it, it, it's, it is an attractive job for somebody that wants a little bit different in their policing. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, but if you want to be the individual and want to be the hero, you won't last very long at all. So there's this dynamic there that the instructors that I've spoken to, the, the former SOG guys who were putting these inductees mm-hmm. through their paces, they acknowledge their job was to break them. Whether it was physically or mentally, that was their job to break them. So they'd identify strengths of a certain person, whether it be his his physical strength or his mental strength or the fact that he was a great runner, and they would avoid letting him play to his strengths. They would oh. find out what his weakness is and play to that weakness, and they would just drill him on it until he breaks. And there was, you know, stories about guys doing a thousand push-ups or a thousand sit-ups, oh. and the instructor saying, "Just keep going," and this guy crying. Um, let me stop, let me stop. No, you keep going, you keep going. They didn't care if they couldn't quite push out the full push-up. They just wanted to see that they'd keep going because as Dad rightly said, they the SOG is a last resort. There's nothing after the SOG. So if the SOG fails, it's, that's it. I'd be done after 10 push-ups. Oh. So I would <laughs> never make it. Doug, what was, your, what was your strength and what was your weakness? What did they drill you on? Uh, well... I suppose physically, uh, I hate running, oh. and so yeah, we'd go on long runs and things like that. So uh, I, I don't mind the the gym work and things like that, but running, yeah. um, I do it, but I don't like it. Did you have a bit Whereas of a cry? Some, Did you some men that you'd be running with, <laughs> they'd be running backwards and talking to you, <laughs> and, and I and just shut up, leave, <laughs> Stop talking. leave me alone. Did yeah. you ever have a sook when you were running because you hated no. it? One day there we had to do uh, a uh, 20-mile forced march in our full gear and we were at the back of um, uh, Little River walking there with our full gear and everything and uh, that was pretty hard. But 
and we were all physically, we had blisters, we were physically uh, stuffed at the end of it. That night, we had to go and raid a house for the neo-Nazis mm. and uh, where a shooting occurred, where one of them was killed. We were so physically stuffed and yet all of a sudden here's this operation and and what was the benefit of doing that 20-kilometre march mm. other than, yes, I've done it, I completed it. It was who's going to give up, I suppose. But it's sending you into a job depleted. That's like yeah, dangerous. Well, too. You, yeah. They wouldn't have known that uh. that job was coming up okay. that, oh, okay. that night. Right. So, But all of a sudden, there it is, you know. So you think, well, is that so important that you're not physically, maybe not physically ready for the job? On, on the intake process, um, you have these situations where you have up to 120, 130 men and women these days trying out. Um, to join the SOG, mm-hmm. and by the end of the entire process, maybe four get through. Ooh, wow! So that that probably shows you how brutal it is, and and how special the guys in the SOG are. Well, you want the best, don't you? Because if it's because a last resort, yeah. I want protection. When you say it's yeah. a last resort, it, it is as far as policing is mm-hmm. concerned. But if it was a, a terrorist incident, of course you have the SAS that would, oh, okay, would yeah. come across or the commandos from uh, New South Wales. But again, that's maybe eight, 12 hours before they get here, get organised and mm. ready to take over. Can we look so, at this one Turner raid as a case study? Do you remember much about that? I, I was at a um, – I just read a little bit does. about it and I knew someone who knew a bit about it. It's funny you mention it. Well, it's funny too because Doug goes more – he just looks at Heath. He thinks oh, he remembers more of it than I do. <laughs> yeah, and you weren't there, Heath. But Yeah, without – I mean, obviously, there's all, there's all the details are in the book, uh, of yeah. course, about this particular job. But essentially, you had a, a group of men out there, pretty nasty men, that um, one of them was obsessed with Adolf Hitler – um, and formed a little group with a, and a three or four other guys, and they became a bit of a neo-Nazi sort of cult. And they were also obsessed with the special operations group, funnily enough, and they started training to knock off the SOG. They thought that if they could build up their wow. um, abilities and capabilities with weapons and, and tactics, that let's take this supposed best group in the country, let's take them on. Um, so they started doing all sorts of nasty things like bombing some cars, bombing some buildings, shootings, robberies. They stole lots of weapons from um, museums. They just needed to find guns. Mm. So they were raiding museums. They were doing um, bank jobs. Um, but what happened was that the detectives were all over them and um, the SOG was eventually called in to, to raid houses and they raided several houses to try and get all the members in one fell swoop. Um, and what, what ended up happening was that... Um, they went into one of their houses where they thought the two kingpins were and one of the guys was ready for the SOG. He had the gun stuffed under the pillow and another one right near his bed. Um, I think it was an M1 carbine, which is a seriously powerful rifle um, and a shooting, you know, like a gunfight ensued in, inside a house. And this guy had his wife in the house and, a, and a, I think... Is this in suburbia? This is like... Yeah, one turner. It's like in the outer east. It's yeah. kind of... Would have been a newish suburb back then, wouldn't it? Yeah, or probably back of, yeah. then. Yeah. yeah, so you know, you had this situation where there was a shooting, and um, and as most of the cases, the SOG wins. I would think so. Mm. I would think so. I wouldn't put pit myself against them. But, mm. but in that shooting, uh, one of the men was hit twice. Wow. With rounds into his ballistic vest. So into his body, into yeah. his 
Yeah. So, Abdomen. And so within that book, I speak to that particular member that got shot twice and he talks me through what was going through his mind, how it all unfolded, you know, when he's kicking in a door of a house one minute and then suddenly just seeing these orange sparks from a, a gun coming from a dark bedroom because this is happening at like three in the morning. Yeah. He's being shot at suddenly and everything changes, snap of the fingers. So he talks me through what his next moves were, what he did next and, and how it all sort of unfolded. And um, it's remarkable stuff when you're getting this sort of yeah. first-hand account um, from these guys that have never spoken before about it. There's another one where the member went into uh, into a room and a bloke had a go at him with the machete and, ah, uh, oh, you missed, you know, and so they grabbed him, put him down and that, and then when he went to communicate on his radio to say, you know, so safe to come in to, to meet the officers and that, he found out that he couldn't communicate because he's... Uh, earplug and the cord running down to the radio from his ear had been slashed and across his vest. So the bloke had actually got him. Wow. But uh, didn't hurt him. But so. very nearly got his throat. If he's, yeah, well, if a little bit, ho- little bit higher. A couple yeah. of inches, yeah. Mm, so they're the sorts of things that people think, oh, yeah, that's no, pretty easy to do. You look how they're all geared up and they've got all the equipment etc but it's still very dangerous and I, so I've you, never thought it was really no, easy to I'm, do by the way. <laughs> who thinks that so you try <laughs> to make sure that everything's on your side so there's a lot of planning goes into uh, doing raids and things like that and um, yeah and you make sure that you've got superiority in numbers and and weapons etc well, one of the very um, few coppers I know who's still married and retired is Ron Idles, yeah. and he talks about the value of the fact that his wife is was a mental health nurse. They're still married. She's retired, and he did. He made the decision, and he came home and told her everything. And so that gave him that debrief that so many coppers don't mm. have in their lives because they don't want to burden their they loved ones with it. The yeah, well, yeah. Some people have said to Linda, how did you stay married for so long? Yes. Because uh, so. it's unlike we, we're very used to the narrative of police marriages breaking up. Yeah. So mm. you and Linda still together? Yes. But they're yes. still asking her though. Still asking her how <laughs> she's doing it. How on earth are you doing this, Linda? Uh, for- did you talk to her? Forty-eight. Yeah, she, she knew and, and talked a little bit but not uh, okay, no. not. In great detail, no. You have have to say um, that the wives and partners of played such an enormous part. Like I look back at what my mum was able to do for myself and my older brother Ben in terms of keeping that family unit solid because, you know, when Dad's pager went off back then, you know, in the early 80s, it was a pager and then obviously the mobile phone, but that pager went off and everything stopped. Yep. Like our whole lives revolved around that pager and, Mm. and obviously for Dad and we understand it, but that was priority number one. Um, in a lot of ways because we just had to come to terms with the fact that someone else needed dad more than we did, Mm. that his expertise was needed to maybe save some other kids from someone that may have, you know, got them at gunpoint or, you know, uh, an angry uh, father that wanted to lay siege to his um, house with his wife and kids inside. So, Was it mostly in the middle of the night the pager went off? That's something that... It was usually late, but it could be any time. Right. I mean, but we just knew that when dad left... I suppose, and from mum, like she just never knew if he was coming back because he also wasn't allowed to say where he was going, what he was going to do. Early in the piece, it was very secretive, too much so. But um, it was, I couldn't say to Linda, you know, all she knew I was going on a job. I might be away for three days. She wouldn't know where I was or what. The only 
uh, time she could get any information was to watch the news. Mm. And oh, if there was uh, something on the news, and she, then she'd be yelling at them to keep quiet so mm. she could find out what's what's going on. But, you know, it was silly, but you weren't allowed to make phone calls and all that sort of business. And... I can't. That, to me, sounds like the way I imagine having a husband off at war in mm. the 40s. Mm, yeah. When you don't know from one second to the next if he's still alive and you're waiting for news either for him to roll up yeah. or for someone else to roll up. I wish Linda was here because I want to know about her mental health during that time. <laughs> so do we. <laughs> during that time and now. Does she ever talk about that? Did she ever need counselling to deal with that stress? Mm, uh, not so much counselling, no, but she needed to talk to some people and okay. I suppose she did. She had some good friends around yeah. her as well, but but I mean, extremely stoic and um, staunch. My mum, tough like, hombres, these parents of uh, yours, yeah, and that, that was just the life, you know. Like yeah. you just, I suppose back then you just dealt with it, you know, just day by day. Or oh, Doug's gone again, or Dad's out again, and when's he coming back? We don't know. So because you got these two young kids, Mum just had to try and keep things as normal as possible. We still got to go to school. We still got to play our basketball and all that sort of stuff, and. Um, yeah, it just was when dad's home, he's, he's going to be home and then it all goes back to normal again. It's just, I suppose I'm one year year old when dad joined, so I didn't know any different mm. up until 18. I remember one night coming home and uh, she was quite upset that I'd come home because she'd cooked four uh, lamb chops. <laughs> 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 One each for the boys and two for the When did you um when did you realise that dad had a dangerous job? Like what dad did? I think in my teens, um I was so fascinated by the police force and um and again going back to the family situation, you know, dad's one of eight kids, five brothers, all five boys joined the police force. No and way. Climbed right through the ranks to Why was that was your dad in, in the force? No, Dad was a, a bootmaker, and that so just one brother joined in uh, 1957, then another one joined, another okay. one in the 60s, then my, my brother, immediate to me, he joined, and, and I'd already been a cadet, so um, okay. yeah, it was just... So it's the family business by the time you come yeah. on. Yeah, it's the family business, and I was intrigued, but less so my brother Ben, actually, which is funny, because he's now a policeman, but um, when I was 16 or 15, um, work experience, Dad let me do work experience with the SOG, so I spent two weeks. When Dad filled out my um, how, my performance sheet, and this is the hard marker, the, you know, the yeah, SOG, but... I got... um. Mine was satisfactory, mm. whereas all the other kids returned with excellent, of excellent, they did. excellent. <laughs> all the boxes I ticked, I got ticked from dad. Oh my satisfactory. god! Satisfactory. It was satisfactory. And he hard. said, he said well, you have to do hostage. something pretty extraordinary to get um, excellent. Wow! And, I and it's the didn't. same with his book. He said, "What do you think of the book?" I said, "Satisfactory." Oh, <laughs> oh my god, Heath, you've got Stockholm syndrome. I don't know. If you, <laughs> you don't understand how hard your upbringing was, man. Yeah, I think so. You're touching on your point about when I sort of started to yeah. realise what Dad did. There was another situation where Mum and I um, and Dad, I don't know where Ben was, but we were at Dad's sister's place down in Mornington, um, Red Hill, Yeah, and it was a family gathering and Dad got the call out and it was probably about 9pm. We were probably set to leave anyway and this particular job was on the Mornington Peninsula quite close. So we had to go there with Dad to a siege situation and sit in the car until 1am, you know, like at the command post while Dad and the men are preparing to sort of raid this place and get this gunman out. So Mum and I are in the car until 1 o'clock in the morning and Dad eventually realised that this is probably going to drag on to maybe 9am or something. So we got a um, uniformed police officer to drive us home to Eltham. We have got to talk to Linda. We have got to get her in here. We need a special ladies episode. I'm fascinated (laughs) by your mum, Heath. What a woman. 
Um, Sitting in the I, car with the kids. I also knew, um, started to find out that dad had shot someone and was shot at, but he would never, ever give me the details until now, um, which has been a fascinating thing as well to that sort is. of go through what happened there. And, and then talking to these guys about what goes through their mind after they've shot someone was... Well, I feel the need now to ask, Doug, yeah. have you killed someone? No. Just shot him. Just winged him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> winged him. <them. laughs> yeah. Are you able to uh, expand on that experience? Uh, no, the experience afterwards is, is is the what ifs. You know, what if he hadn't have come out? And what, you know, what if we had have gone in? And what if we'd use gas and things like that? Mm-hmm. So y- you're sort of trying to think, you know, could, could you have done something different? Well, in the circumstances, we couldn't because he'd fired at us. And, mm-hmm. uh, and actually, um, part of the shot that he let go had actually uh, brushed through the pants of uh, one of the SOG members. So we were all all pretty lucky. But that gentleman was mentally unstable in that. And oh, so no. in some regard, sort of glad that uh, yeah, he wasn't killed. It's so interesting you say that because in a previous episode, we talked to the family of a young woman who mm. was mentally ill and uh, she was brandishing a knife one night at home and, and they called the doctor and said, what do we do? And they said, call the police. And the family's first reaction was the police shoot mentally ill people with knives. That's a, that was their perception. No, again, everything is a, is a last resort. They you called don't the go police. there with that intention. No, they called the police and the police came and were wonderful. Yep. But mm, that was yeah. their fear yep. because this idea is out mm. there that sometimes that has to happen. Yeah. Oh, of course, especially when if someone's coming at you with a mm. knife. And you remember that if someone's a, a 40 feet away with a knife and you've got your gun in your holster and that, by the time you get the gun out of your holster, would, which would take about one, one and a half seconds, he's on top of you with the knife. Mm. And if you see some of the uh, um, photos in, from the United States where somebody, a policeman has been slashed with a knife, mm. uh, yeah, it's uh, a just as dangerous as anything else. And to, to prove that point, Dad and um, the guys in the SOG actually took a lot of um, uh, people out to their um, training ground to show them. And one of the people that they took out once was, um, I hope I'm allowed to mention his name, Neil Mitchell from 3AW. Yeah, sure. Took Neil out because Neil's obviously so vocal in, in the current affairs space and he was very critical of police that had shot people with knives. So, right, O'Neill, come out and actually experience it for yourself. So... They gave Neil a texter, um, texted with the lid off so you can actually show if you can strike someone with that texter and make a mark on their clothing Yes. before... Um, it's a good simulation. Yeah, it's yeah. a good simulation. So you try and get to the gunman before he shoots you. Let's see who wins. And the, the knife, the guy with the knife that might have been, you know, 10, 15 metres away or whatever, inevitably wins. Coming up, Doug talks us through the arrest of Melbourne's other famous Minogue siblings, Craig and Rodney, who were convicted in 1986 of bombing Melbourne's Russell Street Police Building, killing Constable Angela Taylor. And find out how I got to this place in my life. That's not even a decision for me. I'm shooting him. That's coming up in Australian True Crime. The hardest thing was the kindergarten siege in nineteen eighty nine. Eighty nine in Hawthorne. Mm. No matter what we were going to do to try and resolve that situation, possibly one of the children would get hurt. Oh my god! Can you I tell us imagine. about yes. that so I'll, listeners know the sort of background about it? Uh, well, it's some man that was 
He had uh, problems with uh, a hospital, uh, the, the treatment of his wife, and he wanted compensation, all sorts of things. He was outside Parliament and everything like that. But eventually he was looking for a solicitor's office and I think he went into a kindergarten and, and took four children, I think it was, and, and locked himself, nailed up a toilet and stayed in there, spread petrol around, splashed the kids with petrol. So without sort of going into great detail because it's all in the book, um, yeah, in that situation we tried, we tried to talk him out. We thought eventually we were thinking about he kept sticking his head up, so do we, do we pop him? If we shoot him, he falls down on the kids. The kids got blood, blah, blah, blah. No, you can't do that. It's not ideal. Can we crash the door in? Mm-hmm. We crash the door in, we injure one of the kids, blah. So, it's a no-win situation well, so almost, dad, isn't it? Yeah, and Dad's in charge of this situation mm-hmm. as well and the pressure on him because all the parents are now coming to the kindergarten wanting to know, is my kid oh, in there? God. What are you doing? And, you know, this this one drags out for seven and a half hours. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was funny whether we're offering him some food and that. And he said, well, what about some, some lollies for the kids and a little kid? I want a lolly. Oh, oh, oh my God. Oh, little <laughs> darlings. Kids are kids. Like yeah, so that the, man, Sarah Fetton Hussein, yeah, yeah, was, right. um, was imprisoned in 2014, incidentally, for attacking his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so after he got out of jail, he then re-offended. Yeah. yeah. I think um, with a hammer or something. With yeah. A, with a, Tomahawk, I think, or something like that. But, um, you know, again, speaking to the guys that were at that um, scene and they were so mad, you know, they had to keep their emotions in check. We've got a job to do. We can't let the fact that this guy's got these little four-year-olds in this cubicle affect us because we just have a job to do. But in terms of the petrol, these guys were um, ill themselves from sitting outside the toilet cubicle from the fumes. They wanted to, you know, vomit Mm. because the, the fumes were so strong. So you can imagine what these little kids... Yeah. go through and um yeah and I, I look at that when i was writing that chapter and i think dad's in charge of this whole thing so that goes pear-shaped who are they going to point the finger at they're going to point the finger at him and and hard yeah i mean hard, if, if yeah. that had gone wrong yeah. um oh, my yeah. god your well, face would have been on it's all, why didn't you why didn't you do this why didn't you do yes. that you know yeah. did you think about doing this the armchair yeah. all yeah. over that but even taking that shot, maybe the spark ignites the petrol yes. and the whole thing goes up like an incinerator. So I can't imagine um, that pressure. Like I'm feeling stressed listening to that yeah. scenario. I can feel my chest tightening. There was right other. Now. There was Same. another one where um, Dad, you you definitely told me this story, but you can't remember it. Um, <laughs> Christmas morning. Yeah. So again, we're at home. We don't have Dad there because Dad's um, out at a job where a guy had taken um, his whole family hostage because he's split with his wife and. He had no access to the kids and all he wanted to do was see his kids on Christmas morning. He wanted to be there when they woke up. So dad, thinking outside the square, gets his men to start piffing rocks at the kids' windows to wake the kids up early. Guy guy sees his kids in the morning, siege over, he, he surrenders. Oh, hang on. So where was the guy? The guy's, he's inside the house. He's inside the house, but gun. the kids are still asleep. Kids are asleep. He's okay. got He's basically laid siege to the house. He's got his wife in there and he's right. you know, saying that I'm not leaving until I see my kids in the morning for Christmas. Great. Let's let him see the kids and see if he'll Dad, be happy with that and Dad come Dad tells out. his men that have got the house surrendered. He's thinking, all right, I reckon we can end this a bit early. Let's wake the kids up. Gets his men to start piffing rocks at the kids' windows to wake the kids up early. Guy, guy sees his kids in the morning, siege over, he, he surrenders. Oh, hang on. So where was the guy? The guy's, he's inside the house. He's inside the house, with a but gun. the kids are still asleep. Kids are asleep. He's, okay. got, he's 
basically laid siege to the house. He's got his wife in there and he's right. you know saying that I'm not leaving until I see my kids in the morning for Christmas. Great. Let's let him see the kids and see if he'll dad, be happy with that and Dad come tells out. his men that have got the house surrendered. He's thinking, all right, I reckon we can end this a bit early. Let's wake the kids up. So he's throwing stones at the windows to try and wake the kids up and, you know, it worked perfectly. So It did. He uh, saw the kids and said, all right, and came out. Because yep. I'm thinking that's potentially dangerous that the kids... I've gone from unaware and asleep to now involved. Mm. But that's a decision you have to make in the moment to try and save everyone's lives. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. again, you look look for every opportunity, every avenue to resolve something peacefully. Mm. So much psychology involved. And the strategic yes. thinking would mm. be so intense. <laughs> a little bit. I love how you and go quiet while we all like, go, oh, but Doug, and you're just like, yep. Then they obviously dealt with a lot of um, people that wanted to go out suicide by cop as mm. well, which, again, there's a whole other layer of someone that actually wants you to shoot them. Wow. And there was, you know, times where these people would come out and um, one kid um, whose father had actually gone out suicide by cop and he wanted to follow his father's footsteps for whatever reason, comes out of a house and they finally talked him out of the house, but he came out with his hand up his jumper. And he's coming out to a semicircle of SOG guys walking straight towards him with his hand up his jumper. And you're thinking, you know, right now you've got a split-second decision to make here. Has this kid got a handgun under that jumper? And he quickly whips out the hand as if to get the, the SOG guys to shoot. So these are situations that these guys are confronting all the time. Well, and to they be have honest, to make those decisions. That's not even a decision for me. I'm shooting him. Well, this, when he comes out, and I think it's possible, yeah. I'm just shooting him. Early in um, my career in the SOG, we raided a house for a man wanted for murder, and so we raided the house, went in, entered into the bedroom, and as we entered the bedroom, he sat bolt upright in bed and pointed his hand mm. like he had a gun at us. And talking to my colleague that was with me, we were both a fraction of a second off shooting him because we naturally you think, God, he's got a gun. You look for the hands too, don't you? Yeah, you look for the hands because hands kill. And in that split second, we realised he didn't. But imagine if we had have shot him and dead and mm -hmm. trying to explain that yeah. we shot this man unarmed man. Because he held up his hand. And there's a lot of mm. you're right. nuances about that that the public just don't understand. Like, no, that's when we go, yeah. you're trigger happy, you're yeah. crazy, yeah. macho. Yeah. And the other one, Michelle, on that is that when all, like you might have, say, that semicircle situation that I was saying, so you've got this guy surrounded, um, the kid that came out from the house. If they all react, they all see the same thing, these SOG guys. So there might be five of them. And if they all fire at the same time. Yeah, then it's heavy You're talking and... like maybe 15, 16, 18 shots. Yeah. And that's where you get the people or the public coming out saying, how could you have shot someone 18, 20 mm. times? It's like, well, five of us all went bang, 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 bang. And he was not armed and... Or if he was armed and yeah, it just looks right. excessive. Even, yeah. It looks excessive, but it's not because it's split second decisions. Yeah. And it's, as one of the guys says, if you have to shoot once only, then maybe you shouldn't have shot. Wow. If your life is under threat, you should probably let off a few, like at least. Okay. Because you want to you wanna, um, cancel that threat, threat, negate the threat, um, and make sure that there's no more. So it's not just a case of one shot like in the movies and, mm. you know, like a tap to the head. Mm. It's several shots to make sure that that person's going to go down and stay down and that the gun or the knife or whatever's out of their reach and they're not going to be able to grab it. 
Doug, when you shot someone, do you remember that second? Like, like does your training just kick in and you're not actually thinking? Is it instinctive or is there, do you, are you thinking, am I doing this? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes. Like are you. Well, they say, there's a saying, in a crisis under stress, you instinctively revert to the way that you've been trained. Yeah. So, yeah, the training kicks in and there's the threat and uh, so you have to deal with it. And you do it. Yeah. What did you think in the immediate aftermath of that? Do you think, oh, my God, are they all right? Or, oh, my God, this is going to be a complete nightmare dealing with this? No, yeah, you wonder, God, have I done the right thing? And then you realise that you have, yeah. The Russell Street bombing is uh, an event that's considered a day that changed Australia, changed mm-hmm. Australian policing. It was an act of uh, domestic terrorism. Yep. And I believe you were involved in arresting at least one the suspect. Min- yeah, the two brothers, Minogue's, yeah. Talk us through that. Uh, well, we found out uh, we raided a house in... Uh, Russell Street, I should say for listeners who are, are unaware, was the police station. Was yeah, the police the Russell's police station. Well, Dad was there when that went off. Right, you were at headquarters in Russell Street when the bomb went off. Yeah, I was around the corner talking on the phone and the blast came around the corner into Mackenzie Street, shook the windows I was at and smashed one in the next office. And the young so then I was immediately was out onto the street to, you know, sort of do what I could. But, um, yeah, we, we got information from one of the offenders at Stan Taylor in Witchy Proof as to where the Minogues were. Uh, obviously the detectives had done a lot of work and worked out who had uh, committed the bombing. And so we flew by helicopter to Swan Hill and um, they were in a a hotel room. Um, So we got the key to the room and quietly opened the door and grabbed them. And uh, there was a bag full of guns in the, in the, the, uh, the room, which... One of them, the other, what's Craig, the, Craig, Craig and Rodney. Rodney went to go for, but was stopped. And Craig was, uh, we got him out of bed and he was just a crying, bumbly mess, you know. So it was good. This big, strong coward was uh, crying like a baby when he was arrested. So, so I'm just imagining this from the <laughs> perspective of the receptionist, by the way, at the Swan Hill Motor Inn yes, or wherever the this hotel is, manager, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, you're just going about your business and what happens? And a guy in all in black and the chest shield and everything comes in and says... Rings the bell at 3am in the morning, wakes him up and says, you got a key to room 16, please. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how it goes down? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. I'd be asking yeah. that or, question. Or we, no. On our way there, we the detectives would go and oh, okay, get a right. key at yeah. some other stage. So you, okay. you use a lot of support. And right. I, I actually, I love that story because you, you still imagine the SOG, you're always kicking doors in and someone actually went, oh, we can just get a key. We'll just get a key. Yeah, totally. <laughs> in we go. Mm. So, yeah. You make it sound very low key. but yeah. <laughs> now very bad men too. He does. It's he, like, he, they were very bad yeah, men. And, to hear that he was crying like a baby when you were arrested. Yeah, well, we love that. Mm-hmm. And I can see you love that, Doug. You have a little smirk on your face when you tell us that. It's funny. Um, there's, a, there's a really good analogy that one of the guys told me. Um, again, I work at the North Melbourne Football Club as well, so he's probably talking, talking to me in AFL terms. He said the belief within the SOG was as if um, you're going out to play, if you were the North Melbourne Football Club and you are going to play the under-13s or 14s Hurst Bridge side. <laughs> We were so, you know, him, him talking here, we were so well-trained. We're elite. We're the best in the business. They actually felt sorry for the criminals that they were about to go and, and hit. 
You have a confidence when you're going they, in. Yeah, they had no chance. And so I, I think about these guys at SOG thinking, geez, how scared are you about you before you kick, you kick that door in? Mm. They're fighting over who goes first. <laughs> That's, that was actually a thing that they were a badge of honor to say, I'm the entry man. I'm going in first. That's And they say that's where the action is. So you want to be up the front because you want to put your skills to, to the test. Yeah. Like a football player wants to be in the team. Yeah, you're right. I'm imagining it's yeah. like what's on the other side of that door and these big scary no, bandits. They're, but- they're, they're loving the fact that if they missed out on a call up for a job, they were so annoyed. Or if it was a day off when a job that they were working on uh, went off. I was so annoyed. I missed that job. <laughs> I missed the Minogues. Yeah. What about the Armour Guard heist at Tullamarine? What happened there? Uh, I was there the week before. Uh-huh. So he missed it. So he's oh, spewing. spewing. Yeah, it's a touchy subject. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Heath, you'll have to talk us through yeah, this. Yeah, I, I can see. So obviously you've got a situation there where um, um, some some guys held up a, a Bramble security guard in Port Melbourne first and they're just sort of warming themselves up to do a bigger and better job and the um, armed robbery squad back then was, uh, as one of the detectives said, we were like, we were on them like white on rice. <laughs> they were all over them, um, you know, surveillance and, and the like. And they pulled the SOG because they knew these guys were some serious criminals that were going to, you know, use guns and, and do a pretty heavy sort of um, robbery. So they had the, uh, the Melbourne um, airport terminals sort of surrounded, um, watching these guys for couple of months, they kept having some false starts. So they'd go to do this job and then they'd stop. And then they'd go the next week and then they'd stop. So it was probably becoming a bit frustrating for the SOG and the ARS, the armed robbery squad at the time. A lot of resources, a lot of money being poured into this job, but they persisted. And the day that it all went off, you had um, uh, uh, three guys, three armed bandits, Normie Lee, um, Stephen Barchi and Stephen Asling, um, committing a crime where they were going to try and steal what they thought was $2 million out of an armor guard truck that was dropping off um, some valuables and cash to a terminal. Um, it ended up being $1.025 million, I think, that they got. The situation was that they ran in, they did the robbery, they they steal these bags of cash, they're armed. Um, there's photos of the whole thing. And they ran into the SOG who were waiting for them. And instead of giving up, they decided to pull their guns and oh. point them at the SOG and um, oh. one of them shot at the SOG. Uh, one died. Uh, one was shot several times and ended up dying three times on the way to hospital, but he's still alive today. Wow. Um, and that was a, you know, a huge situation. It was in public. You know, That was right mm-hmm. in, the, in the public eye. So mm-hmm. that was a pretty significant And story. again, it's terrifying. It's the sort of thing that people later can go... You know, what were you doing pulling off an operation like that in public? Yeah. You could have hit standard, bystanders. That's right, yeah. Who was the, the criminal that said that he won't do a job in Victoria? Oh, uh, Christopher Binns. Who, oh, yeah. Christopher oh. Badness Binns. I saw him just, in court once. He was really crazy. All like, right, yeah. yeah. But not crazy enough to do yeah, a job true. in well, Victoria. Well, yeah, the, 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 <laughs> the story there was that the SOG had arrested him once. He was in Victoria, which was rare, and uh, they'd picked him up, I think it was out in Jamison, and um, when they got him back, or Dalesford, and they got him back in one of the SOG, because this guy's so bad, right? The SOG had to sit with him um, in the cell because he'd broken out of other facilities in the past, so they couldn't have a, any risk at all. And this SOG guy sitting there with him, and he says... Hey, mate, how come we don't see you uh, down here in Victoria very often? And Christopher looks at him and says, are you, are you crazy? Like, I'm never going to do a job here in Victoria because you guys are mad. <laughs> and he's talking about the SOG, like he's scared of the SOG. It's like, no, I'll, I'll do my stuff interstate because they're, they're not as bad as you guys. You guys idea. are crazy. So. <laughs> you guys are crazy. The badness is no, yeah. Yeah. Badness. How do you retire from this life, Doug? How on earth do you? Um, 
Well, yeah, it, for me to be promoted, I had to make a choice of either moving on or, st- or staying in the SOG. So the natural thing is uh, t- to be promoted. So eventually I became a superintendent and ended up at uh, the forensic services in charge of all the crime scene and um, did the um, the bushfires, the 2009 bushfires. Because wow. I was the disaster victim identification commander, so responsible to the coroner and, and to the investigation to recover the bodies and things I like that. I have a friend who lives in King Lake and uh, I went up a week after the fire to take her food and batteries. Remember mm. the, the mountain was cordoned off, no one could get up there, but uh, she could come down and get me. So mm-hmm. I met her there with batteries and all that. They had no electricity. And uh, it, that was traumatic for me, mm-hmm. seeing the spots on the road where the cars had been burnt out. Mm-hmm. And also there was a system, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there were blue police ribbons on gates signified that there were there was yeah, body the, inside, yeah, the, the, the property. They marked them, yes. So as we were driving back up to her house, we would pass the gates that had the blue ribbons on them. And it was just, I've never gotten over it myself. No. How do you, how do you cope? Well, uh, being in charge of it, of course, I saw some of the the, the devastation and that. But it's the, um, the crime scene disaster victim identification unit out at Forensic that do all the work and collect all the bodies and things like that. So, going through that and doing it day after day, and they deal with it. It's great how they their psychology to to doing the job because it's just a job, so to speak. But it's the next day when they see a photo in the paper of a child that uh, it w- was killed in the fires and that, that sort of gets to them a little bit. So, yeah, you've got to just mm. just be careful. But I was a reporter on Lilydale and Yarra Valley Leader at the time of Black Saturday and we drove through Steeles Creek mm-hmm. the week after and um, just the smell and mm. the, like, yeah, and we spoke to a lot of people who had post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Yeah, but you we know, look to you guys to be stoic mm. and um, get us through moments yeah. like that and, yeah. and do the grunt work. Yeah, well, there's talk at the moment. There's a lot of some mental health issues within the police force. and that's, A lot uh, of the talk chief, about PTSD yeah. at the moment. Yeah, and the chief commissioner is right onto it and um, yeah, doing what they can to uh, to help people. Do you Why have any, do you think? Do you have any PTSD? Me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a, okay. that, that response is what you get. Mm. Um, well, one of the guys I spoke to shot a 18-year-old knife-wielding um, offender, uh, saw him at the end of his bed that night um, standing there. And, um, yeah, he had that, uh, I think it's a awakening vision or whatever they call them. Mm. Um, but most of the guys that I spoke to have that sort of justification of what they did, that they know they didn't do anything wrong, they were just doing their job and they did all the right things. Yeah. Um, and they they know that if you start having doubts, that's when things can can haunt you, and you start second guessing yourself. It's incredible psychological tenacity, mm. and I guess that that goes back to the training period, right? This is yeah, what we're looking exactly. for. Naturally, I've had a few. What if, what if we'd done this, or what if we'd done done that? But no, we we did it how we had to do it, or how it uh, panned out. Sometimes you've got no choice because it's the offender or the the person you're trying to to deal with that that causes the situation. So um, doesn't human frailty even just freak you out sometimes? Don't you? Don't you sometimes just think, God, that could be my son. That could happen to him. That could happen to my wife. Some 
not, human frailty doesn't scare you when you see it that closely? No. <laughs> Doug. Doug's not the deep. He's not the deepest thinker, Michelle. You may have picked up. He's very black perfect. and white. It's yes. very yeah, black and well, white. That's you know. probably why. That's why he was good at what he did. That's the unshakable former SOG, Doug O'Loughlin, whose son Heath has written an excellent book about the Australian SOG. That is the... Uh, special operations group for we civilians. The book is entitled Sons of God and it's available now. Don't forget you can also buy Emily's excellent books on our Facebook page by hitting the Shop Now button. And, of course, if you want to help other people find this podcast, you can go to iTunes and give us an excellent review and five stars. Thank you so much to everyone who's done that already and thank you to you for downloading Australian True Crime. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 